Welcome back, guys and gals. You are listening to the Northern Miner Podcast, and I am your host, Matthew Keevil. As usual, we are brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. Please do surf by yukonminingalliance.ca to check out all the exciting exploration and development activity going on in Canada's Yukon Territory. And we got another great slate of segments for you this week. Uh, Leslie Stokes, our resident geology expert, will be swinging by for the Geology Corner, wherein we talk copper porphyries. That's right, we get into the mama jama of all copper deposits. We will talk copper exploration, discovery, mining. Uh, we will talk block cave techniques and what might be ahead for copper miners and copper supply. Uh, so that's going to be really exciting. We'll dig into that in a little bit. I also have an exclusive interview I just recorded today actually with the president and CEO of Attack Resources, Graham Downs. We will talk their option agreement with Barrick Gold on the Arachla project in Canada is Yukon Territory. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about what they're planning this year and how that might change a tax uh, exploration strategy. Uh, we'll also talk about why exactly are so many majors rushing to the Yukon. Uh, so we'll dig into that as well a little bit later. But first, let's crack into a bit of macroeconomics. Unfortunately, I do not have the rosiest picture this morning. Uh, one of our analysts from Scotiabank, uh, friends of the show, sent over a note that said, quote unquote, global equity markets are taking it on the chin this morning uh, as Europe comes back after the Easter holiday weekend. Uh, European markets were down over 1% on average across the board, while U.S. equity futures were reportedly poised for another opening in the minus column. Not surprisingly, this was coupled with a surge in spot gold prices. Uh, the precious metal was trading up this morning at about $1,292 per ounce at the time of recording. Uh, gold continues to be supported by geopolitical tensions over North Korea. In the meantime, over in Europe, French elections will be taking place within the next week. The first round is scheduled for April 23rd. In addition, the U.S. dollar is finding support from U.S. Treasury Secretary commentary, noting a stronger U.S. dollar over the long term is quote unquote positive. Furthermore, total known physical gold ETFs were up 37,000 ounces yesterday. Turning our eyes to base metals, I had a, another update from our friends at GMP Securities about copper and zinc. Uh, in terms of copper, Chinese growth and global infrastructure spending should drive the demand picture, and a chronically underinvested covered bear supply chain will dominate the supply side of the equation. GMP notes the copper price rally in first quarter 2017 was quote-unquote better than expected. Uh, as a result, the average price of $2.66 per pound for the quarter was better than GMP's forecast of $2.00 and 25 cents per pound. Uh, GMP reports they have not changed their price assumptions for the remainder of 2017 and still expect a steady price increase over the next few quarters before appreciating to a long-term forecast of $2.85 per pound by 2018. GMP reiterates that the copper story was largely impacted by the supply disruption narrative during the first quarter in terms of strikes and export disputes. They note the activity likely caused the copper price to move ahead of expectations. Moving now on to zinc, which has actually curtailed its rise in the last few weeks. Uh, it was trading at $1.13 per pound, roughly at the time of recording, but had hit a high of near $1.20 per pound. 
GMP notes that they expect recent price gains to be maintained, uh, and they have adjusted their price deck accordingly. Uh, GMP now forecasts the zinc price to be $1.30 per pound over the remainder of 2017 and through 2021. They are increasing long-term zinc price assumptions, 2022 and onwards, to $1.10 per pound uh, from $1 per pound. Notably, zinc concentrate treatment charges, TCs, dropped to such low levels on the spot market in early 2017 that some smelters, quote, elected to take longer than anticipated shutdowns or bring forward planned maintenance. One potential overhang in terms of zinc is the fact that Glencore maintains around 500,000 tons of shut-in mine capacity. Uh, it is uh, safe to assume, GMP says, that at some point or at some price level that that capacity will be reactivated. Uh, given Glencore has been a seller of producing assets lately, uh, notably the sale to Trevally we discussed in previous episodes, GMP concludes that there is probably not a near-term risk of Glencore reactivating that latent zinc capacity capacity. And without further ado, let's bring in Leslie to talk about copper porphyries. Uh, this is going to be an exciting geology corner, and uh, I will actually see you guys after the break when we will discuss some interesting changes in Market Vector Index Solutions Global Junior Gold Miners Index, aka the GDXJ. Welcome to the Geology Corner. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun. With no drilling noise in the background. Nothing. No. It's just us and no. our beating hearts. Yeah, yeah. And my heart is particularly beating today because I'm talking about something super cool and awesome. Uh-oh. Yes. What's that? Well, you know, I was going to originally start talking about the geology of porphyry copper deposits, but the more I started looking into everything and preparing for this podcast, I was like, super enamored and enthralled by the just the human history of porphyry copper deposits themselves so so the make, discovery and mining of them basically yeah or? basically yeah. how it is that these deposits have evolved over time in terms of our mining and how we look at them oh okay that sounds good to me it's a really interesting story yeah, yeah. so anyway um i guess to kick off for everyone else that's interested in knowing uh, porphyry copper deposits were first recognized as a legitimate economic target at the turn of the last century. Thanks to huge advances, of course, in engineering, which allowed for bulk tonnage, open pit mining on big scales. Yes, economically. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it yeah. just changed everything. Yeah. In fact, it all started in 1906 at the Salt Lake City's Bingham Canyon. Oh, yeah. Have you been there? I actually flew over there. It's insane. And it's insane. Yeah. They have like a lookout point where you can stand above the pit. Yeah. And there's a train that runs under the mountain to the other side. Oh, it's crazy. And it, you can fly uh, like a little Cessna around the inside of the pit. And yeah. it has its own weather systems, apparently. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so back in 1906, you know, uh, when they started mining Bingham, back then nobody really knew exactly what a porphyry copper deposit actually was or how they were formed. All they really knew is that digging 0.5%, 1% copper was out of the ground was actually worth it now. Pretty nice, yeah. Yeah, which is pretty nice. Yeah. So that kind of like just changed things on its head. Um, then major deposits and mines started to pop up with most of the investment going towards regions within Western North America and South America, since at the time there kind of really wasn't anywhere else to go. Eastern Europe was actually held under the vice of the Soviet Union, right? Yep. 
And so that place and a bunch of its other allied countries were completely a no-go zone for explorers. The Iron Curtain. Yeah. 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 Funny. So it just drove everyone else looking for a different kind of metal curtain, but copper. Yeah, there we go. else. Did you like that one? I did. That was nice. Very nice. (laughs) So over the next few decades, the projects that were developed not only delivered metals, but importantly, it also delivered invaluable knowledge to scientists that were chipping away at the bench walls trying to figure out how the heck these systems actually formed. So the extensive work culminated in like this groundbreaking 1968 paper by Lowell and Gilbert, which described porphyry copper deposits as ore bodies formed from hydrothermal fluids spewing off of a magma chamber. So the paper delved into the exploration model, um, the classic exploration model, noting you know a number of ore and alteration shells that surround the core of the system. Okay. So this classic image, and you can find it if you were to like Google image it's porphyry in copper a, deposits, every it's copper in everything. Slide deck. Yeah, <laughs> like it's yeah. in every deck. It's everywhere. Yeah, just go to a copper company slide deck, and you'll see and it. You'll on, like, see it. Thir- <laughs> yeah. Well, in university, I remember all the professors used to joke, and they called it the horse's ass because that's basically it, what it looks like. It does like. look like a horse's it ass. It kind of does. Yeah. So, you know, a few years later, um, in 1972, porphyry copper exploration was completely cut off at its knees in Chile because when a change of governments nationalized all the deposits there. So you have all these explorers that have like buckets loads of like new information on on how to find these systems Mm -hmm. and they can't go to Chile. You can't go to Eastern Europe or China or wherever. Not that you can go to China now anyway, but still. um, So where did they go? And you know, right here in North America. North America, yeah. So tons of investment dollars just poured into there. So in the 70s, everything started to change. Obviously, we had technology just peaked new levels. Um, there was increased infrastructure. And it was a total heyday for mining and exploration. It really was. The uh, creation of geophysics. Mm, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, which so, was actually, I believe it was a technology they were using to look for submarines during World War II, which was co-opted into... Uh, into uh, technology to uncover ore bodies. Wow, really? I believe my great uncle might have been that. involved in that. Whoa. <laughs> we need to do a podcast on that. Yeah. <laughs> that's back in the Next day. week. That's back in the day. That's yeah. amazing. Okay, yeah. well, we will yeah. look into that for another episode. That was when he was invited to work on the Manhattan Project, I think. Oh, cool. He declined. <laughs> yeah. We need to get into this. Yeah, yeah, no, no, there's a lot of, uh, you know, Keevil backstorying that... Uh, that's out there. That's out there. Norm Norm Keeble Jr. wrote enough. a book. He there's a book out there. Okay. Yeah. You'll have to you have yeah. to pass it to me. I want to yeah. read it. Yeah. So like Matt was saying, everything in the seventies started to change. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and of course the game though for porphyry copper deposits totally hit a new level. Um, when a new processing technology called um SXEW. Yep. Solvent extraction, electro winning, hit the hall roads in the 1980s. Which is like everywhere now. It's crazy. Yeah. The process, which basically utilizes smelter acid to strip copper from oxidized ores and mine waste, totally trumps the conventional method of grinding and smelting, which is really labor intensive. Mm-hmm. Especially if you have a lot of oxide ore, then you couldn't really process it before. But with this, you can. So, like Matt was saying, in fact, today, SXEW accounts for over 20% of all copper produced worldwide. Yeah, I remember Mickey Fulp, the mercenary geologist, was the first one to turn me on to this because I hadn't really looked at oxide copper before. And Marinci, mm-hmm. which is a, one of the largest copper mines in Arizona, I went to Marinci before. Uh, is 
pretty much a full oxide operation. Mm-hmm. And it, I found that interesting because I always associated uh, copper porphyries with uh, more circuits that were a lot more involved. Not, you know, not oxides, more so sulfides. And that it's a, you have to have this mill that covers like half an acre, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> which is like, but, but a lot of the world's copper is produced from these oxide deposits, which is a way less um, costly. Super. Like the infrastructure yeah. and everything is just way less costly, which makes a lot of sense. I mean, but I guess they're finding it more and more difficult to find oxide copper. Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, so, well, that was it. But yeah. that, that was like kind of a pinnacle moment in porphyry copper history is this, this discovery of being able to mine more for less. Um, that changed everything. Now, the next big thing that hit porphyry copper mining in the 90s, just so kind of recently here, was block cave mining. My dad is still emailing me block cave mining links. He just checked in your phone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now he's still using me YouTube videos. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, a lot of these porphyry deposits, they have, you know, pretty long teeth um, and they extend quite to yeah. depth. Yeah. And so with the advent of block cave mining, largely developed by, I guess, like Rio Tinto in the 90s in Australia. Yeah. Um, at what was the name? North Park. North Park. That's what copper, we had to ask my copper dad. Copper gold. My yeah, dad. we didn't quite know where. Well, because Red Chris has a huge block caving element, right? My mm-hmm. dad, everyone knows my dad works for Imperial. Um, so they have a big block cave element at Red Chris. So I'm assuming they've done a lot of research into uh, the history, the pre- history and practicality and engineering, of, of yeah. using it. So, do, do you have exactly what it is like? Sort of a breakdown of. Uh, of what the process well, is. Okay, so if you can imagine this, block caving is essentially creating an open pit under a carapace of rock. That's amazing. That's that's all it is. Yeah. So eventually, you know, you go down deep enough and then you just start letting gravity do all the work for you, blasting, gravity drop, haul it out. And the cool thing is with block caving is that you can maintain the same levels of production as you would if it was an open pit mine. So you can still do 100,000 tons a day. Yeah. From okay. a blockade. It's all it's all about throughput. It's about going it's about underground throughput. and maintaining an open pit throughput. Totally. Yeah. And okay, and this is why porphyry copper is block cave mining porphyry copper is still avant- more advantageous than say mining a sediment hosted high grade copper deposit okay. in the Congo. Yeah. Because you know if you were to get that amount of through- throughput from a sediment hosted copper deposit which is five meters, ten meters thick, oh. you know you're looking at maybe mining half a kilometer a day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A day. So you actually have a spatial problem. As it's more of a spatial that, problem, yeah. yeah. If yeah. you want to keep up that throughput. So with block heavy, the metal's really far more concentrated, so you get more bang for your well, that's theoretical it. effort. Yeah. Buck. So maybe it just pays off. It balances itself out. But Plus, I mean, the, those porphyries, by and large, tend to get richer in grade, right, at depth? A lot at of depth, those, yeah. yeah. Well, usually with block cave mining, it's the idea is... You don't really do it unless you have at least 1%. Well, a really nice, yeah, like a nice grade. Yeah. 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 So anyway, fast forward today, let's, and what kind of challenges do porphyry coppers actually have? And Finding them. We know that, well, A, yeah, finding <laughs> them is a huge deal because now that they're getting more undercover, but they're also extremely power intensive. The grades are falling. They're becoming much more deeper. And like you said, more expensive to find. Political jurisdictions obviously continue to fluctuate and there's shortages of water. Mm-hmm. So pretty much what we're seeing today is that a lot of the porphyry copper deposits out there are bumping up against their limit. So what kind of technology is going to raise the next bar like we've seen in the past? That's a good question, whether it be a processing or a mining technology. Exactly. Yeah. So it's really interesting to think about. And the most common idea out there is that the future of porphyry mining will be from underground. So the idea there, of course, then too, I feel is um, otherwise, you know, worldwide demand for copper might stabilize and decline. 
So we don't really need well, to kind of too. push everything as yeah. far as we have. Because there's a lot of copper out there. It's just the question is the grade, right? Yeah. And some of these porphyry copper mines have been in life since yeah. 1906. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like they're long <laughs> they're life around. mines. They're going to be kicking out for a while. But anyway, hope everyone has uh, learned a thing or two about, you know, porphyry copper. If you have any cool ideas about what you think is going to be the next groundbreaking technology or revolutionary change, in the exploration mining of porphyry deposits, let us know. That's gonna. There's gonna be a lot of uh, students coming in on that one. I That'd think. be cool. Yeah, yeah. We should have. Uh, we should sponsor our sort of copper rush challenge and see if we can get, <laughs> just rip off the idea. Right. Um, but Why yeah, not? that's a great one. Yeah, exactly. And of course, anyone who's listening who wants to know a bit more about the geology of porphyry copper deposits, I'm sorry I didn't get to deliver that to you this week. But if you are interested, you can always pick up a copy of our Mining Explained, mm -hmm. which is a publication put out by Northern Miner, which is extremely valuable um, knowledge base. So it's okay. also in Spanish. Oh yeah, it is in yeah. Spanish. Yeah, it's bilingual. Uh, our editor and it's sort of our editor in chief, John Cumming, is uh, not a lifelong project, but he updates it like once every two years, and he's been working on it for. It's incredible. A long time, yeah. No, no, it's a really good resource. It's well written, so um, it's a popular, uh, popular trade shows. It's an shows. extreme, yeah. Everyone's constantly yeah. contacting um, me. And you it. can hop by our website to pick that up. I think it's. I, I don't want to say what price it is because I actually don't it know right now. Everything. Things yeah. change. Things yeah, change. things change. I, yeah. So. But it's knowledge. Knowledge yeah. is priceless. So get on it. Yeah. <laughs> there you <laughs> so go. I look at it. We'll tell sales guy. <laughs> Probably not charge enough for this. <laughs> anyway, I hope you guys all have a wonderful Easter weekend or had. I should say. Um, and see you all or, or I don't know talk to you all next week boom <laughs>Welcome back to studio. Thanks again to Leslie for dropping in to talk about the big wide world of copper porphyries. Uh, let's swing on back over to the gold side uh, to talk about a recent announcement by Market Vector Index Solutions about a significant methodological change in the MVIS Global Junior Gold Miners Index, aka GDXJ. Now, this change was announced on April 12th, and what it basically equates to is they're changing the market capitalization thresholds to be included in the GDXJ. Uh, and as a lot of market observers are saying that this is as a result of the index getting essentially too big for itself. Now, of course, there's a pretty interesting underlying debate here because the GDXJ was supposed to be an index that allowed people to have exposure in their portfolio to junior gold miners. Uh, and now, as you expand the market capitalization threshold upwards, you, you, the natural question is, well, are these junior gold miners anymore? Um, and Scotia bank actually crunched the numbers on this uh so the market capitalization range is going up significantly um the market you used to have to have a market capitalization of 1.6 billion or less to get on the gdxj now you can go up to around 3 billion almost 2.9 billion uh scotiabank estimates that the methodology change will result in 23 index additions without any deletions so the apropos question is obviously why does this matter uh so let's get into a little bit of the meat and potatoes on on Scotiabank's analysis, uh, they forecast that the addition, so the new companies on the index, could comprise 60.8% of the pro forma index portfolio. This means the GDXJ indexers could have to sell US $2.6 billion across existing index constituents to fund purchases in the new additions. 
And so this could get pretty interesting because Scotiabank uh, calculates that uh, the forecasted index selling, so this selling we just talked about, represents between 2.5% and 8% of the total shares outstanding of the company that currently are on the GDXJ. So things could get interesting here. Uh, so that's why it's uh, they're expanding the portfolio with bigger companies, which are going to account for a larger quota of the index. So definitely something to keep your eye on. Uh, it should be noted, however, that this is not the first benchmark change for the GDXJ. Uh, Market Vector Index Solutions, previously known as Market Vector Indices, pulled a similar change back in 2014 after uh, the ETF provider ran into similar problems. Uh, Scotiabank pulled an analysis on that as well, and the market capitalization range for the new constituents in the index effectively doubled. Uh, so yeah, we got to keep our eye on that one. Um, as well as the, uh, if you're interested in a list uh, of the new companies, and uh, Scotiabank calculates there's about 23 new companies, as mentioned. I I'm sure it's out there. You can find it. Um, I might just put it up on our website. I'll see if I can uh, get that going for everybody because reading it out on air like this would would eat up about 20 minutes of the show and we won't be doing that but that's just a quick rundown on the changes you may see in the GDXJ coming up in the next quarter uh, keep your eyes on that there's a lot of in-depth reading out there uh, we'll probably put something together on that as well but uh, yeah check it out interesting stuff and now let's drill into our exclusive interview with the president and CEO of attack resources mr. Graham Downs uh, wherein we discuss the recent deal the company made with Barrick Gold on the Rakla Gold project in the Yukon Territory. Now, this earn-in agreement could see Barrick uh, gain a 70% interest in Attack's Orion project. Uh, this will include a total investment of $63.3 million, which includes a private placement of $8.3 million and a two-stage $55 million exploration earn-in option. So as we uh, noted a number of times over the first quarter here, there has been a rush of uh, majors taking interest in uh, exploration properties in the Yukon, uh, hoping to find the next mine. Uh, as we discuss uh, in the uh, segment here with Graham, there's a bit of a uh, flight from risk mentality here. Um, a lot of these, interestingly, I've mentioned this a few times with some of the CEOs in the Yukon, uh, wherein a lot of these projects, uh, Kamenak aside, I suppose, due to its growth profile, but uh, a lot of these projects haven't fundamentally changed too, too much over the past let's say, cycle. Um, there's been uh, some ounces added, some new discoveries, uh, some de-risking in terms of permitting and things like that. But the question in, in the front of my mind is always like, why now? Why uh, why these projects have been there, a lot of them for a significant amount of years, uh, and they didn't see a lot of major investment, whether it be in terms of equity or joint ventures. But over the last six months, it's been, it's been a, a mad rush up there. So I, I always ask that. We'll get that answer out of uh, Mr. Downs when we uh, get him on the line. Um, but also, I mean, uh, it's just a long list of majors that are now up there. Uh, you started with Gold Corp and Kamenak. You have uh, Newmont with Gold Strike. You have Ignico Eagle with the White Gold Sean Ryan deal. Um, so it's just been uh, impressive, let's just say, uh, to see them uh, going up there and not necessarily for development stage projects. These are projects that definitely fall a little bit closer to the exploration or greenfield side of the spectrum, though they are all established exploration projects by and large with the exclusion uh, of the Ignico deal on relatively greenfield land with uh, Sean Prospector Sean Ryan. Uh, so I will run uh, the Graham Downs interview and uh, I will be back after the break to wrap up the show. All right, so I'm here with... Uh Graham Downs, President and CEO of Attack Resources in downtown Vancouver, and we are talking about their recent option agreement with uh, Barrett Gold on the Rathlet property in the Yukon. Uh, thanks for joining us, Graham. 
Thank you. Up there. Um, so maybe the first question is a little bit um, about uh, what do you think is the timing of the majors coming up and why after so many years as we seeing another Yukon Gold Rush here? Yeah, thanks. I think, uh, you know, really it's just that the Yukon is, is, is an amazing place to work. The mineral potential is uh, amazing. Uh, and I think it's, it's, it's just a friendly place to work. And uh, you can see that with uh, a lot of the other majors coming up. It's uh, a lot more comfort working in the north and an environment where they can get things done. Mm -hmm. and, and we mentioned a little bit about this uh, off tape, but uh, maybe a little bit of a flight from risk as well. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I mean, you know what you're going to get and you, you know what the rules are, which is important. Um, and then drilling down a little bit into your direct relationship with Barrick, obviously, um, uh, this is really pretty exciting times and maybe just a little bit of discussion about A, uh, the terms, uh, and B, sort of what the broad overarching maybe uh, joint strategy might be this year. Absolutely. So as, as you know, our project is uh, almost 1,800 square kilometers. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very large project and, and this deal allowed us to advance the project, have uh, Barrick come in and work on a central port of, part of the, uh, the project and uh, they can earn up to 70% uh, of that, what we call the Orion project, which is the center, uh, by spending up to $55 million. And they've also done a uh, $8.3 million investment into the company as well for 19.9%. And uh, so we're in the middle of uh, developing the plan for the Orion area that they're earning in on, and then we are gonna reallocate the money that we are gonna spend there for a $10 million program on uh, either end of our, our project, which is uh, uh, the Osiris project at the very uh, far east and the Raw project at, at the western end. So it's going to be uh, a lot of news and uh, a lot of drilling. It's going to be one of our largest years in uh, exploration uh, programs in years. And obviously um, you mentioned the Orion project specifically and that, that's uh, the area that Barrick has, has an uh, emerging interest in. Um, maybe a little bit of background for our listeners on the Orion uh, discovery um, and also just sort of why uh, they find it so exciting and why you find it so exciting. Absolutely. I mean, uh, the Orion uh, uh, discovery was made uh, two years ago, and we f followed it up last year with some near-surface gold uh, mineralization. I think it was 60 meters of uh, uh, just about three grams, and that was pretty much from surface. So uh, it's a new area, near-surface. Um, uh, there's some great rocks in there. I think Barrick's familiar, very familiar with those rocks. Um, I think they like what they see. Um, so they're going to be coming in there. We're going to um, do a very systematic approach to that area. It's, it's, a, it's a large area. It's yeah. about 780 square kilometers. So, you know, there's a lot of room to find an economic deposit in there. Um, and it's going to be great to have them in our Nataline camp with us for the summer. And uh, hopefully we can both find a, a big gold deposit there. And then uh, just to wrap up, Raymond, uh, every time we talk, we sort of touch base on the tote road and, and road access to your deposit. Uh, maybe just a little bit of update on the sociopolitical and uh, how the tote road's coming. No, absolutely. So, yeah, the road's uh, at the, actually at the western end, western. And, and, and it goes into the, uh, the raw, the tire deposit. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, you know, we're about three quarters way through the permitting. Mm -hmm. uh, Yesab is making recommendations right now. And again, we're working uh, with the First Nation, and hopefully in the next couple months, we'll have a, a decision on, on the uh, permit to be able to build that road. Um, and that'll be a 70-kilometer road to the, to the Tiger Deposit. Um, so that'll be a great milestone if we can get there. And then uh, I guess capital markets are always a uh, big topic, especially among gold companies. We've seen a recent rally in the price, and uh, maybe just anecdotally, uh, what sort of your conversations have been like around gold equity and, and 
how you're finding the markets these days? Well, they are coming around. I mean, they're not uh, they're not uh, as good as they were back in 2011. I can tell you that. I mean, but uh, you know, there are investment funds and private equity still looking for quality names, mm -hmm. and I think that's the key there is, the, is quality names and good exploration uh, projects in in safe jurisdictions. And welcome back. Uh, once again, I'd like to thank Mr. Graham Downs for joining us on air quickly to uh, discuss the recent deal between Attack Resources and Barrick Gold on the Rakla project in the Yukon. Uh, it sounds like it's going to be a really busy field season up there. Barrick will be uh, funding on the Orion portion of the, of the property, while Attack will be doing its own $10 million exploration program on the eastern and western flank of that 700 plus square kilometer property package. So it should be, uh, we'll see a lot, I assume, results coming out of. Uh, of, of Rakla, and it's, uh, as Graham mentioned, one of the busiest field seasons they've had in years. Uh, so it's uh, exciting times at Attack. Do check it out. Um, and one thing I wanted to mention, uh, that we had a conversation off-air, Graham and I, uh, about this, and he said that uh, they'd worked a lot with Barracks Nevada um office out of Elko, which I found kind of cool, um, because as we know, Barrick has a uh, big presence down in Nevada. They have two major mines, no notably Cortez and Goldstrike. Um, and so what they're looking at at Rakla is Carlin-style mineralization. And as we know, that's commonly associated with Nevada. So it'll be interesting to see what getting some uh, some geologists and geoscientists up there from Nevada working at Rakla might be able to do with this sort of Carlin-style model. So it's just a little cool side note to the story uh, and something to watch moving forward. Uh, but yeah, that sort of brings us to the end of the show. Uh, uh, one thing I did want to mention once again, uh, if you haven't checked it out, please do surf by our site and check out the Canadian Mining Symposium scheduled for May 9th in London, England. I will be in attendance. We will be doing a live podcast from the show. I will also be moderating a uh, mid-afternoon panel on capital expenditures, which is sponsored by uh, PwC. Um, so there's going to be some fun stuff going on. We have a lot of great sponsors over there um, and uh, an absolute stacked uh, slate of speakers, including uh, Kelvin uh, Dushinsky from Barrick, Robert Freeland, David Garofalo from Goldcorp, Lucas Lundin, and Rob McEwen. Uh, so we got a lot of uh, big hitters over there. Uh, we're going to be talking uh, about Canadian mining and also celebrating Canada's 150-year anniversary. So do uh, do check that out if you have a chance. Um, and also, uh, please do like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate this podcast on iTunes because that helps us a lot. And one sort of Northern Miner service announcement, uh, we may be missing next week's episode. I know, terrible, terrible news. Um, but uh, I will be out of town, so uh, it might be a little bit difficult for me to put together the post-production on an episode next week. Uh, I will try to get something together. Perhaps we can get Leslie to do a quick geology corner that we can get up in the meantime. Um, but uh, yeah, there may be one slight uh, week delay on episode, what would it be? 57, I think. Uh, so yeah, that's just a, a public service announcement from the Northern Miner podcast. And this has been Matthew Keeble. Thanks again so much for listening, and hopefully I will talk to you next week. If not, it will be the week after. Thanks again. Mm -hmm.